Welcome to the Anecdotal Affairs from the Wonder Womb Nurse and Beyond. This podcast gives insight into the world of labor and delivery nursing. Join me as I share funny stories, explore spirituality, discuss health and wellness, provide updates on current events in the field of obstetrics, and shed light on the adversities faced by nurses, especially travel. Through a combination of roundtable discussion, interview, and solo shows, I aim to raise awareness, advocate for important causes, share my own personal experiences, inspire, build community, offer support, entertain, have fun, educate, and foster meaningful discussions. Hi, and welcome. Today, I want to talk about a critical issue that you may find very thought-provoking. It can cause some triggers, especially if you've ever had a loved one where you feel that the treatment wasn't correct. Either it was too much, too little, or even looking at my loved one. Are you even paying attention to what's going on with them? Are you paying attention what else they have going on before you're treating them? Uh, these things go unnoticed in healthcare. It's treating the diagnosis versus treating the actual patient in front of you. It's the curing and not the caring. And I don't want to say caring because I believe that most providers, all healthcare providers care or else they wouldn't be in the business. Healthcare is something that, I mean, people may get into healthcare for, you know, financial reasons. Um, it does, it's very lucrative, but you really have to have a compassion at the end of the day to care if you're going to continue to do it for a long period of time. Now, there are people that get into it thinking that they have that and, and leave. And I think that's respectful. To me, if you get into something, like I know a lot of nurses come through through internship programs to labor and delivery. And I respect the ones that come and say, you know what, this is just not for me. I'm making the, the decision that I need to go. I'm, I'm, I need to get into back into my other area or even, you know, go off and venture off into something different so that they can find their niche. Um, back way back when I was a ICU nurse and I did, um, I stopped doing it. And then I did a little bit of home care and hospice. And I realized that home care and hospice was not only that it wasn't my niche, but it was just something that wasn't for me. I was able to care for my patients the same, but it, took a lot more out of me to be able to get to that level. And I didn't feel that it was my niche. Um, fast forward, I get into labor and delivery and I absolutely love it. And it was at a time where I had a very hurt heart, uh, children grown out the house. Uh, my children actually were in New Jersey at the time when I got into labor and delivery, they went and moved back with their father. And it was, it began as filling a void, you know, uh, just a happy place and it did cause so much joy in my life. There was such a euphoric serotonin release every time I went into a delivery and, and saw a delivery. And then as it became, you know, when, when things get bad, they get bad. And when they started to get into more critical care over the years, we're seeing more critically ill patients. Then it became, this is my thing. I Now I'm unplugging things. Now I'm putting circle circles into square pegs. Now I, I have to really figure things out, the critical thinking element. Um, I've been in nursing, I'm sure that I've said it before, for about 23 years now as an LPN and then as an RN. And I have to say that most of my experience has been at the bedside. So the caring aspect is something that I've always I, I've loved about myself, that I'm able to 
you know, go to the grocery store and see somebody that I took care of or their parent or their the birth of their baby and that they actually remember me. Um, but again, you have pr providers and providers, they have a limited amount of bedside ex uh, exposure with the patient. It's not that they don't want to, they, I'm sure. And I do see some that take the time and, you know, sit for hours and talking to their patient or, you know, in a pregnancy, they see them for nine months consecutively in the office. So I'm not saying that it's, uh, that the hang handicap is because they don't want to, is that sometimes they just don't have the time. So I guess it only makes sense that sometimes it feels like people or, or uh, physicians or, you know, uh, upper healthcare are treating more of the diagnosis versus treating the patient. Um, I guess when you look at it, it, I mean, it sounds like from the surface, it, I'm talking about a topic that may or may not be important, but it's the revolution of where healthcare is going because of, you know, managed cares. So I guess I'm not only talking about this for nurses to advocate more for their patients or for patients to advocate more for themselves or for physicians to advocate more in the treating the patient and not so much the disease process. Uh, I guess it's a, a worldwide issue and I'd like to inform everyone, you know, you could be caring for your mom right now and you know, you feel like maybe they're missing something or you could be caring for your brother and they're, they're not seeing something as clearly because they're treating more of a diagnosis than they are of your loved one. So this is just some general data that I found on the web. Um, it may, like I said, this is very thought provoking. Did you know that diagnostic errors are alarmingly common in healthcare? And a study showed that it affects about 12 million of Americans every year. It causes errors and delay of treatment, in some cases, severe uh, uh, complexity of their current and future health conditions. Um, diagnostic errors are big. And I guess the only diagnostic error I remember really hearing about was around 9-11, I knew someone whose mom was diagnosed with cancer, had to have a lung removal only to find out that she never had cancer. It was a fungus from whatever the soot and everything that had fallen from 9-11. It was crazy. Um, there's also a overgrowing concern on the opposite end of uh, overuse of diagnostic testing. Uh, according to the National Academy of Medicine, up to 30% of healthcare spending in the United States is wasted on unnecessary tests and treatments, and it puts financial strain on patients and the healthcare system. I mean, we always talk about medical waste, and for those who don't know, medical waste is basically just that, where we're doing just useless testings for whatever reason, whether it be to check off a checkoff box or because we have no other answer. But some of them are necessary, and some of them are not necessary. Some of them it, it should be if it's something to, if somebody comes in, let's give an example. If somebody comes in through the emergency room and they are been weak for weeks and losing weight and they're don't know where it's coming from. They're eating fine, but they just keep losing weight. Well, now's the time for us to run several 
GI tests to see what's going on, metabolic testing to see if it's an absorption problem. Like that makes sense. But when you have somebody who comes into an emergency room and is coming there for X, Y, or Z reason, and we just happen to see, I don't know, a a thyroid level that's off and we test it, does that equate for us to go into further testing and do A, B, or C things, uh, ultrasound of the thyroid? Or uh, No, that's okay. You're going to have to follow up with a doctor, somebody that's going to manage this care as an outpatient. Um, uh, to me, that's something that I've always seen. Uh, the pressure to meet diagnostic quotas and navigate complex healthcare systems is taking a toll on healthcare professionals, according to the American Medical Association, it says that physician burnout is affecting about 44% of doctors, leading to emotional exhaustion and a decline in the quality of care that they provide. Not saying that the care that they're providing, you know, what came first, the, the, the chicken or the egg, is the fact that they're treating these complex situations the cause of their burnout, or are they burned out from other things and then, you know, causing a, a decline in the quality of care that they provide? I think that's 44% of doctors to me is speaks volumes. I mean, you're talking over a quarter and that to me means a lot. I, that means you're picking between one and every four doctors may actually have this burnout. And what if it's one in the four that you're picking, right? Um, Healthcare disparities are concerning aspects. A study in health affairs found that minority patients are receiving lower quality care fewer diagnostic tests than the white counterparts. Uh, This highlights how treatment of diagnosis disproportionates in certain communities. So this is a good intro into the statistics that I'm going to get into uh, when it comes to labor and delivery. So I've laid out some sobering statistics. Uh, We're going to shift our focus on the human side of this equation and Kind of what can we do to ensure that patients are not reduced to their symptoms in the test results, right? So as we dive into some thought-provoking discussion, um, I'm also going to include my area and a specific, I guess, mini soapbox that I have. Um, and I'm also going to introduce some uh, round great breaking uh, treatment or as far as we're concerned, a shedding the light on a problem that's already been there, uh, focusing on African-American women with preeclampsia, uh, a new biomarker that is able to detect within a two-week time frame uh, was invented by Thermal Scientific in result of a couple of studies that were done. And I was lucky enough to use that particular project as a project for my BSN program. So I, I I, I was floored at the research and the data and the lack of some data and the lack of some changes from our uh, higher authorities, ACOG, AWAN, to be able to promote this, to bring it forward, uh, to change lives, to decrease comor- uh, decrease the, the mortality, decrease uh, infant mortality, decrease the just disparities that happen in healthcare, the treatment of a diagnosis versus the treatment of the person. Okay, so let's talk about a specific example. Preeclampsia in African-American women is categorized 
as high blood pressure during pregnancy, as we know, um, but is disproportionately higher in this group. They are three to more times likely to experience severe preeclampsia when compared to other, uh, you know, other ethnic races. Um, and when comorbidities are present, such as obesity or diabetes, uh, the risks that are associated with the preeclampsia increase. Uh, there was a study that was published in the American Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and it found that African-American women with preeclampsia and comorbidities are at a higher risk of adverse outcomes. So when we talk about the disparities of labor and delivery and disparities of healthcare and um, the rates of what we can prevent being 80% of preventable outcomes that we have control over that this this group specifically it, it probably takes a huge portion of that number so i'm not sure if um a lot of people heard about a story somewhere uh in the beginning of the year about tori bowie who was a runner and she lived in Florida. She actually lived in Orlando and she was pregnant. And I'm not really too sure of the, the, the actual logistics of it, the gestation. I think she was in her second to third trimester, if not um, in, right in between those later second trimester, early third trimester, not really too sure. Um, it was a TikTok that was going around. I happened to see where a doctor was explaining the death uh, that was likely caused, or I think actually proven to be caused by preeclampsia and a seizure, uh, which when you have preeclampsia, it could lead to eclampsia, you can have seizures, you can have a stroke, and it can eventually cause death. And that's what happened with this young lady. And the story was, was the baby inside, you know, she was pregnant. So was, did the baby pass inside and then expelled after she passed? Or if her stroke uh, or, or seizure, whatever it was, the causative, uh, the final causative of death, did that after her body, after she passed, did her body expel a live baby who then turned, uh, you know, then passed? Um, again, could it, I guess the question there was, could it have been avoidable? You know, like I said, going back to the 80% of preventable treatment, you know, we can prevent the outcomes of 80% of, uh, things that happen. So with that in mind, you know, in, in my world, we see a, uh, treatment plan for hypertension. That's pretty generalized, uh, I, probably every facility that I've been to has the same treatment plan. I mean, it may it may differentiate a tiny bit. Um, currently, where I'm at, they uh, promote a lot more of Procardia, which is an oral medication, um, also known as nifedipine. And they use that as a treatment in conjunction with labetalol, which is the one that we know to... Um, the faster acting. So we start off with 20, 40, 80. Those are the three doses that we do. Um, so we do 20 
And then we check the blood pressures consistently for five minutes. And if they're not decreasing, then we go to the 40. And then after the 40, we go to the 80. And we can redo this again. The only problem is, is that it's not recommended to go up to over 200 milligrams. So you can see how fast we could go and utilize that, you know, that, that algorithm till we get to the 200. Um, Procardia or nifedipine, the sec it's another very high leading um, medication that is used in the treatment uh, for several things, but in this case to lower blood pressure, uh, it's used, we give 10 milligrams or 20 milligrams. Sometimes we'll give a 30 if we're doing it in conjunction with something else, but the 30 milligrams is a more of an extended release dose. The 10 milligrams and 20 milligrams are an, an immediate release. And then we check, recheck the blood pressure. It's, uh, you know, metabolized, recheck the blood pressure and see if it decreases. If not, then if you start off with 10, then you give a 20 the next time or another 10. Um, not sure the recommendation, ACOG's recommendation, maybe somebody could help me on how many doses it actually takes or what's the limit uh, pharmaceutically that, you know, that she can't, a uh, woman cannot go above a certain uh, amount. I want to say 90 is an extended release and that's like one of the highest doses, but I'm not sure if the same it applies for the immediate release. Um then there's hydralazine. So hydralazine is another medication that's known to decrease blood pressures. Um, in this case, what we've seen, and it's kind of like the soap, everybody's soapbox, every labor and delivery nurse's soapbox is that hydralazine tends to work better with African-American women than the counterpart uh, treatment of labetalol. So we can push labetalol, keep pushing, keep pushing, keep pushing, and not see an effect in the blood pressure where sometimes hydralazine or procardia will work. So the big thing is, is what, why are we giving labetalol if we know that this particular demographic has a higher risk of it not working? I guess that's the bigger question. Um, so going back to the main topic, are we treating the diagnosis or are we treating the patient? I got into healthcare to treat the patient. And I guess there is a, you know, there's a, there's a part of understanding that we have to understand and respect what the provider is saying when they're giving orders for a treatment plan. They're going based off of all the didactic that they've learned and all the years of experience um, and some actual recommendations from their higher, like, you know, their, their higher boards, like what um, ACOG, for instance, you know, ACOG puts out a, um, a release saying this is the recommended treatment plan. So of course the OBs are going to listen. That's their, you know, their higher authority that they, uh, they respect. And sometimes as nurses, we some have problems with it and, you know, we'll talk it about, uh, about it amongst ourselves. It, it becomes annoying if, you know, because Sometimes you could get on a huge soapbox and really offend somebody. Not that the doctors would get offended, but I'm sure that, you know, they're kind of feeling some type of way when they hear a, a group of nurses talking about them. So sometimes I think we should be mindful um, and have a little bit of respect when we're addressing you know, a doctor, when it comes to something like this, you know, hey, or making a suggestion, you know, our, our big S bar recommendation is the last thing. Do, can I recommend that because we see A, B, and C, can we try D, E, F instead of it? 
instead of saying, well, we know that this, because what do we know? We, we know that we have a lot of statistics that are laid out. We know that there's a lot of uh, studies that are being done, but obviously that's not the, the script of treatment neither, because every study has a different result. So you can't base it on one study alone. You have to go through a, a smorgasbord of studies to be able to actually make it make sense, right? So now that we laid out these statistics, I want to talk about a biomarker. And this is was the focus of my uh, my capstone project. It's a, basically a game changer. It was developed by Thermo Scientific. It's known as ThermoPre. And it's shown um, results in identifying preeclampsia early in pregnancy. So let's go back to the pregnant mom who has preeclampsia, usually diagnosed either early on with a gestational or a chronic or a little bit later with the, the development of the preeclampsia. So it allows for the healthcare provider to tailor the treatment based on the results because this thermal pre biomarker has been shown to show a woman would develop symptoms of preeclampsia within a two-week time frame. And if we have this information, then we can tailor the treatment differently. I'm not sure. I know that it was FDA approved in May, but I'm not really too sure if hospitals are going to start utilizing it or what that looks like. Looks like. I'm sure that there's going to be a sensitivity when it comes to it. Uh, but I, to me, it's a breakthrough. It allows the healthcare provider, like I said, to tailor the treatment for these high-risk patients, the diagnosis and the comorbidities. I think if doctors utilize the thermopre, they can intervene earlier, more effectively, and they reduce the impact of comorbidities in the pregnancy. Uh, you know, there's things that they're not going to be able to avoid. Like if the patient was obese, if mom was obese before, then, you know, it, it, that's a comorbidity that they can avoid. But the likelihood of a seizure, the likelihood of having a preterm baby, there are interventions that can be done to uh, warrant a great outcome. I, I think this is a significant step toward addressing the healthcare disparities in maternal care. I mean, it's clear that comorbidities can alter the course of treatment, but in this and especially in this vulnerable population, but by combining this patient center approach, this biomarker like thermopre and all these new innovations that we have, I think that we could potentially make a very big, huge dent difference in healthcare. I mean, these are very thought provoking outcomes. I mean, the, the fact that we now are able to detect things, our science is so much better than it was decades ago, years ago, centuries ago. And if we can utilize the resources that we have been given, imagine what we can do in the face of healthcare. I think it's amazing. So what can we do? Um, let's shift our focus to the human side of this. What can we do to ensure that our patients are not reduced to these symptoms and these test results? I feel like it's crucial for healthcare providers to adopt a, a patient-centered approach. Instead of solely addressing a diagnosis, I think they should take the time and understand the patient's values, their preferences, their goals, what their thought process is, what their budgets look like, what kind of insurance they have. Are they likely to follow up or not follow up? I think that shared decision-making, in other words, allowing the patient to have a part in their decision-making is, is key. 
I think we also have to prioritize preventative care versus early intervention. It, sometimes if we catch these issues before they come become critical, you know, we can reduce the risk for extensive diagnosis, the length of stays in hospitals, improve outcomes. I think that the patients have a big role in what to do as well. I think that as a patient myself, because we are healthcare providers, but on the other end of it, at any given moment, we can be a patient. And I think that in general, we should have a proactive approach in healthcare. We should ask questions and be okay with seeking a, a second opinion. I mean, we are the experts of our own body. We take it to a provider and the provider says, well, X, Y, Z. If you're not comfortable with it, you know your own body, take it to another person to, you know, have a, get a second opinion. There's nothing wrong with that. And nobody should ever get offended. No provider, especially if you have a good relationship with them, should ever get offended. If anything, maybe they should think about that second set of eyes in case something is being missed. Well, that's all I have. I mean, it was just kind of a soapbox moment for me. Um, something that's been coming up, like I said, I did my capstone and that was a part of my capstone. I started to really see how many times I myself have witnessed a diagnosis being treated versus the, tr the treatment of the patient, the actual patient, the comorbidities of the patient, you know, what's going on with the patient, you know, whether they got no kids at home or they got three kids at home that are going to fight to take care of them. Like I've noticed this probably, like I said, in the 23 years that I've been a nurse, and um, in different areas, obviously, it, you know, I, I think that we need to start into this new century looking with all the research, with all the research we have, with all the innovations that we have and, you know, learn how to tweak and standardize care um, to conform with the ability to, to treat the patient and not the diagnosis. Um, I, I welcome any questions, concerns about this topic and maybe sit around and, and politic about it in another time, um, what somebody else's view is, because like I said, you know, my view, but, um, I would love to hear what everybody else has to say. And, um, so thank you for tuning in. And, uh, like I said, if you, if these, topics that we talk about. If, if any of this to you seems uh, alarming, if you found this episode thought provoking, please share it with your friends and family. Uh, remember, it's not just treating the diagnosis, it's about treating the whole patient and providing the best care possible. So with that being said, thank you again. And um, my email is J-U-S-T-B-A-R-B-0-7 at gmail.com. If you have any questions or concerns, let me know. Until then, I'm out.